Good morning. How's everybody? Good, morning. Good to see you. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, welcome to Kesed. My name is Danny. I am one of the pastors and I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, I'm excited that you're here. Uh, I want to address the Christmas gnome there in front of the piano because some of you know that uh, someone placed this on our stage uh, without our permission, I think two years ago. And then he just started floating around the stage and we kept him. We never gave him back. So uh, those of you who were like, where is he? He's right there. Stop asking me. I'm not in control of where the gnome goes. And no, you can't buy him at the end of Christmas. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, we're in a series right now called From Now to Forever. And we're talking about not missing all the moments that are right in front of us. The moments that last from now to forever. The moments that uh, a lot of us are a little more thankful for this year. Because last year many of us missed uh, family gatherings altogether. Some of us haven't seen family for six, seven months and uh, this holiday season is a really special time to come back together and just kind of sit in, in what it means to, to be a church family. Uh, when I launch the series, I want to address a, a Christmas element, elephant in the room, if, uh, if we will. I launched the series. I promised I would be here for the entire series every single weekend. And then I disappeared for two weeks. And I felt the judgment from you guys. <laughs> I felt you're like... You liar. You're a Christmas liar. That's what you are. Um, I want to address that. I, a few weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, uh, came down with COVID. And uh, I ended up having a pretty bad case of it. I was in bed for uh, four or five days, three of which I don't even remember that well. Uh, luckily, my father-in-law, my wife's father, is a physician. And so we were able to, to do everything sort of in the house. And, uh, and I'm doing well now. But I just want to make sure you feel bad for judging me for not being here <laughs> <laughs> for two weeks, and I wanted to communicate uh, where, I, where I was. Um, that said, that particular story of, of, of kind of that, that season uh, really sets up well what I want to talk about today, which is what it means to be a Christian in this world that is ever-changing. I, I think we, as Christians, sometimes forget that, uh, that we are called, and I believe I'm, this is what we're going to teach on, that we are called to, at some level to adapt and I think as Christians, that's become a really bad word uh, because of some things in Scripture that we've only looked at through one lens. Here at Kesed, uh, we believe that it's okay to be spiritually curious. We believe it's okay to question or even disagree. And some of the reason that's important is because many of us, especially if you've grown up in church, have grown up in a church that taught everything from one lens. And that lens or that denomination or that preacher or that the theology becomes the only way which you can engage God, the Holy Spirit, and, and Scripture. And we believe that there's more to that. We believe that there's a space where you can actually sit and have some dialogue with God, with each other, have some study in Scripture, and find a lot of safety in the curiousness. And that specific safety I want to talk about today is around the idea of adapting. To do that, I want to, with my wife's permission, tell you a story, a real-life real-time story about Aaron and myself during uh, my COVID experience. So I get COVID, and uh, I don't really believe I have it, because I just don't get sick that often, and I, I just didn't feel like I was going to end up getting it. And, but I, I was feeling worse and worse and worse, and my wife asked me, she was at the store, uh, if she could get me anything, and just on a whim, I told her to get, you know the orange popsicles with the vanilla in the middle? The or okay, so, I, so I, I'm a fan of those, and I asked her to get those, and she bought them for me, and she gave me one, and then she went off in the house to do whatever she was doing, and I took a bite, and it tasted like dirt. 
And I was like, my wife bought the worst orange cream popsicles you could possibly buy. Some off-brand, never heard of it before. Why didn't she just get the ones that grew up with as a kid? I don't understand. I already don't feel well. So she walks in the house and she's like, what's wrong? Because she can tell I'm pouting. And I said, I asked you to buy me the orange cream popsicles that I wanted, but you bought these instead. <laughs> and she goes, I don't understand the tension. And I said, these are not the ones that I asked for. These are, these are orange all the way through. There's not even cream in the middle. There's nothing. It's just solid orange. They're disgusting. They taste like dirt. She goes, let me taste one. So she gets one and she tastes it. She goes, these are delicious. And I knew right then, I think I might have COVID. <laughs> she goes, what? I go, I can't taste a thing. This thing tastes like I'm eating a popsicle stick. This is, this is not good. And she's like, no, that's not good. And so we went through all the different things. And sure enough, the next four or five days were, were really rough. Uh, it was important, uh, obviously, when you're sick to stay hydrated. And I don't know about you guys, but I drink probably more Gatorade than I should. And we always buy those variety packs. And the ones that I don't drink are the grape Gatorade ones because it's terrible. My wife decides this would be a great opportunity to get rid of all the extra grape Gatorade. <laughs> We have in the house because I can't taste anything. So she refuses when I'm thirsty to bring me anything but grape Gatorade. And I'm like, this is not, this is, this is, this is blackmail of some kind. I don't understand. And she's like, listen, you can't taste it anyways. We got 19 of these things out there because you won't drink them. You're drinking grape, grape Gatorade. And I said, I refuse to adapt. I drank four or five and I was like, no more grape Gatorades going in this body. My head knows, my heart knows, I don't drink grape Gatorade. And she's like, you can't taste it. And I said, I don't care. I'd rather wither and die than drink another, <laughs> have another drink of your grape Gatorade garbage. And so I refused to adapt. She needed me to be hydrated. And so she, sh you know, shifted back to the, the Gatorade of, of the Lord, right? Just cherry, but that's not... So, so this goes on and on and on, right? We make it through our week and a half of, of all those things. And every morning, uh, as I was able, uh, Aaron and I would sit and have our usual morning coffee, of which, of course, I couldn't taste. It was just warm liquid. But still, it was time with her and all those things. And then one morning, my wife, I wake up, I come downstairs, she hands me coffee, I sit on the couch, and she takes the dogs out into the backyard to, to, to be outside for a minute. And I drink the coffee, and immediately I went, Ugh. This coffee is terrible. And I went, oh, this coffee's terrible. That's like a Home Alone moment. Like, I'm home alone. I'm home alone, right? It's like one of those things. So she comes in because she hears me yelling, and she's like, what's going on? I go, Aaron, this coffee's terrible. And she goes, what? And I go, yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. She goes, oh, you can taste. And she sits down, and she gives me a hug, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I love you so much. And I'm drinking my terrible coffee. I'm like, I can't believe I can taste this terrible coffee. And then I go, why is this coffee terrible? And my wife goes, and I said, what did you do? She says, listen, listen. <laughs> Now, we all know, right? I'm just going to put it out there. We all know, and if you're a coffee lover, people know that. They end up buying you coffee and such. Everybody has at least one bag of garbage coffee in their house that they never drink. Right. They never drink it. I'm not going to say a brand because my wife was like, hey, don't say brand. Some people might like it. So I'm not going to mention Safeway Select at all as if that's, <laughs> as if that's the, the brand that was in our house. But either way. We have some coffee that nobody drinks. And I looked at her and I said, why is this coffee terrible? And she goes, listen, 
you couldn't taste it anyways, and I just wanted to get rid of it. And I was like, we already had a stand around the grape Gatorade. She's like, I know, but you could see the grape Gatorade, and you couldn't see the coffee. So I've been feeding you coffee like this for 10 days. No wonder I was sick so long, putting poison in my body. I refused to adapt. She apparently adapted quite well. We have no more grape Gatorade or garbage coffee in our house because Danny consumed it all. I think as Christians, this story ties really well to a little bit around how we are supposed to approach this world we live in and why the world often doesn't feel very comfortable coming to our church or sitting with us as friends or sharing the burdens that they wrestle with. I think some of us, some of us, in spite of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, in spite of the stuff that's happened in our lives, in spite of the, the presence of God, some of us, even though we can't really uh, taste it, refuse to engage in some stuff that God is clearly calling us to hydrate with. We're like, no, 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 but I can't, I can't do that. That's not what I do. I don't participate in friendships with people like that. I don't sit across the table from people like that. And God's like, I know, but you're full of my grace and love. You, you can't taste it anyways. And I, as the Holy Spirit, am engaging and doing and, and, and bringing people. As a matter of fact, Christmas and Easter are the two most uh, visited months, those seasons, a couple weeks before, a couple weeks after, of all the whole church year. And there will be people, there may even be right now, that show up at church who don't know why they're here, and they'll sit next to other people who think they know why they're here, but those people who think they know why they're here won't engage with the new people because, well, you can just tell, they're a little too grape Gatorade for me. And I want to talk about what I believe the Bible teaches around that. And so that's what I want to unpack today. I think more than any other group, often we as Christians are presented uh, in this way because of the verbiage we use, which is important that we are found, that we are saved, that we are chosen, that we are set apart. And what happens when we live inside that worldview and don't add other things to it is we begin to think of ourselves as special and different than everybody else. And without even meaning to, we start to smell that way. We start to walk that way. We look at people and we're like, oh, you still struggle with, oh, and then people feel like, what, I, and all of a sudden there's a space and a tension that isn't supposed to be there. Now, I think, if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm being just, we're just going to be vulnerable today, that it's a lot the church's fault, specifically those who teach scripture. Because again, we look at everything only through one lens and add nothing to it. We take beautiful verses like this one that describes our God. Numbers 23, verse 19, it describes God. It says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? This is an important part of, of being in relationship with God, is realizing that the God of Scripture is the God of today, and so we teach people that God never changes. Amen. Amen. That's what we do. And it's beautiful, and it's powerful, and it's real. We also teach this about Jesus, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Powerful truth, important truth. Then we add to that verse, verses that call us to be as God is. In Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And so suddenly, 
without really diving in and owning what these verses really mean, it becomes easy to see how we as Christians have in so many ways become unwilling to embrace moments of adaptation and so change. Therefore, we create a culture within these very walls of Christians who feel that in order to be like God, they should be cautious of adapting. Because to be like God is to be unchanging. And so therefore, how I am today is how I'm supposed to be, and it's how you are not supposed to be. And if you're better, good. But if you're not where I'm at, then sorry. I won't come to meet you where you're at. I'll just wait for you to get to where I have arrived to. No wonder throughout scripture, these kinds of Christians have been called self-righteous and pharisaical. No wonder that we have oftentimes over and over and over found ourselves inside buildings full of many, many chairs and very few bodies. Now, I wanna be careful because I want you to recognize that this discussion is important. I wanna say this too, that scripture says that God is never changing, but it does not say that he never adapts. And there is a significant difference. I wanna give you a story of what I think is probably one of the most beautiful examples of God uh, uh, adapting to uh, a person that he's engaging with for the sake of the person. It's the beautiful classic Christmas story of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm sure you're all looking forward to it. You're like, I just hope we do Christmas, Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know anything about the story, you know that God is Abraham's chosen man, and he represents more than just one man. He represents really this, this humanity that God has decided to engage with, and through relationship, Jesus would eventually become the savior of the world. It's, it's, it's this big, giant picture of God and humanity, and how God is going to set up how we all engage with him. But within this area that God is doing this, there is a city of great wickedness, and a city of people that are, that are doing all kinds of dark things, all kinds of destructive things to each other, uh, to themselves, and to the, the nations around them. And so God, in this discussion with Abraham, lets him know that he's going to do something about it. Which means he's most likely going to destroy it. It all starts when God lays out his plan. Genesis 18, chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 20 and 21. Then the Lord said... Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Notice, this is God telling, not asking Abraham what he's about to do. Notice, there's no question marks. He's not, he's not seeking Abraham's advice. And the Bible is full of God telling and not asking. Packed, full of God saying, I'm going to do this or I'm gonna do that, or I'm not gonna do this, or I'm not going to do that. It seems that actually is his usual opening posture when it comes to interfacing with humans. But what I don't think we often talk about and so get caught up in is thinking that because there are no question marks, there is no invitation to dialogue with God about the thing he wants to do. This entire series is about embracing moments, and I don't want you to miss within the text these next few moments because they happen really quick, back to back to back. And between them lie the entire context for today's talk and for what I believe are some of the most important relational building blocks and so moments to be experienced with our creator. And they're a little bit scary and they're a little bit edgy if you allow yourselves to soak them in. And they might even be a tiny bit offensive. But I believe if you can sit in the moments and really place yourself there with Abraham and his creator, you may see an entirely new perspective around what it means and how much God actually loves you 
and your neighbor right where they are. It says that God shares this with Abraham, no question marks, and that the men that were with him and God began to walk away. Very next verse, verse 22 says, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. And look at this phrase right here, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. It says he was just with God. He was just present. This first moment is authentic presence with God. There's a lot of verses that back up this kind of approach and relationship with God. Verses like Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. Just be still, just be present, just stand before me. And it's not about, by the way, finding where God is in order to stand before him. It's just about being where you are. Verses like Psalm 139, 7 back that up when it says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? You see, being with God is never about going someplace that God is. Instead, I'll put it on the screen, presence is all about being conscious and aware of who you're standing next to. And Abraham, he knows. He knows he's standing next to God and he sits in that space. Maybe he's two, three feet away, the appropriate guy distance. (laughs) Right, just two, three, three feet away just sort of sitting there thinking about this thing that God said he's going to do. And Abraham realizes he's still standing in the presence of God and the creator of all things, and so he decides he's gonna go for it. He's gonna gonna ask some messy questions, and this is the second moment. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It says that Abraham drew near before he asked the opening to his question, which meant the space that he was with God prior to the question wasn't near. It was just in God's presence. I wonder how many of us have been traveling with the presence of God for years and years and years and years and years, but have never actually drew near. Like we're just on the mountainside. We know him. We tell people about him. We even hear from the Lord. But we don't actually take any time to draw near. Now, I don't know what draw near actually means. For me, it means that Abraham probably scooched over like six inches. A lot more in his heart. But I think there might have been a physical side to it where he was like, okay. And I think God knows this, right, because he's God. And he's like, oh, he just scooched over. And then he asked this question. This is such an important building block for life-giving relationship with God, especially when you really start to realize that this question Abraham asks is actually a risky prayer. He's actually asking God something that he's concerned about, something that is bringing him worry, that God is perhaps going to go destroy this city full of people. James 4.8 talks about this very perspective, drawing near to God, when it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We will talk even more about this in next year's prayer series that we're going to launch in January, but here's what I want you to know about Abraham drawing near to God, about not just sitting in the space with God, but actually drawing near to God, that what he then asked was a prayer in his heart, and that teaches me so very clearly that prayer is often about you and I drawing near to a God both on his way and already there. That, that it's like a trust fall. Do you remember at camp when you were a kid and they would do the trust fall thing? And, and it was like, you're like, okay, I'm gonna fall. And the person behind you is like, I got you. And you're like, okay, but, but I'm gonna fall. And they're like, I got you. And then you've gotta just fall before you can trust them. I think many times prayer works that way. Like that verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Abraham scooched over six inches and God just invaded his heart. Because when you draw near to God and don't just sit in his presence, when you do more than just attend a church service, but you actually become the church, that's God meeting you in the midst of that fall. 
many of us in this room are so close, but what we want is for God to put his hands on our shoulders and pull us back. That's not a trust fall, friend. That's just being yanked over. And God does that sometimes, but it generally doesn't go in the direction you hope. Usually it's like, okay, God, do something with my life. And he's like, fall back, fall back. And you're like, okay, God, I'm falling. Mm, I'm falling. Uh." And God's like, you're not falling. And then he's finally, all of a sudden, he's in front of you by the sweatshirt pulling you to the ground. And you're like, ugh. God's like, now you fell. This often is how I've lived my life walking with God. And I love that in this story, Abraham doesn't do that. That instead, he's willing to fall to God, that he draw near to God, and God draws near to him. And so... Knowing that, he does this very thing. He opens up his heart before the Lord, and with a risky prayer, he asks the rest of the question in his heart. Verse 24, he says, God, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, I just want to be very clear that if you're a God never adapts, God, if like God is just a piece of stone that is the same in all directions, that he, he doesn't move even towards his, his bleeding children, that if he's just this thing, this is a very scary and disrespectful question. God didn't ask your opinion. Okay, God's not, in this particular verse, it's not apparent that he's inviting Abraham in to weigh out what God should do with these people that are destroying themselves and other people. But Abraham, because of his relationship with God, because he was willing to draw near and felt God return that, is willing to just put all of his mess out to the, into, the, into the world. God, what are you doing? And why are you doing it? I just, I adore everything about this. Because scripture is full of these kinds of invitations. Remember, Abraham was chosen of all the people on earth for a very specific reason. He was set apart. He was different. And this is how he was different. In that he didn't buy into the customs. He didn't buy into the depravity. He knew what he was and he knew what God was and he was willing to be fully messy before him anyways. He was a living example of 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Very famous verse. says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It says if you want to be in relationship with God, you humble yourself and cast your messy anxieties. And this is so very important because this verse not only quite loudly invites us to bring that mess to God, it also says that if you're unwilling to bring that mess to God, that therefore deems you as prideful. No, no, God, I got it. Clearly, God, you're going to do whatever you want to do. I have lots of concern, but (laughs) you're God, and I'm just going to go ahead and keep myself here so that you're impressed with me, the world's impressed with me, and I'm not even going to recognize the fact that other people in the room think that's really messy. Your God's just going to kill all those people. But I'm fine. Plastic smile all the time. This is what Abraham refuses to do. And he goes, that seems really messy. And I know and believe you love me enough that I can sit in that mess with you. So I'm going to give you my anxiety around what it is you've said you're going to do. And because I'm giving you my anxiety, Scripture says Abraham was incredibly humble of heart. Because he was truly no games before the Lord. He was just as he is. Not accomplished. Not wise. 
just a human in relationship with God who was willing to put himself out there. This also means for Abraham to draw near and bring this very real concern that he was a person who thought of other people. He didn't just think of his own movement. This isn't in my notes, but uh, this is for somebody in the room. You as a Christian, you need to be about God's movement more than you're about your local church's movement. You need to be about what God's doing. And that means if you're not supposed to be in a church like this and you're supposed to be somewhere else where God wants to use you, or if you're somewhere else but you're supposed to be here, or if you're supposed to be ministering to a neighbor, or you're supposed to be a light in, at your office, these are the things God cares about. And I have, I have been a part of, and I probably have done some of it myself, where what ends up happening on this stage is a selling of the vision of this church instead of an offering of the work and movement of the Lord. And when that happens, when it's about the work and movement of the Lord, then suddenly you can ask all your anxious feelings about our messed up church because it's all about God's movement anyways. God, why is this happening? Why do they do this? What's going on? And people within the church, if they're of the same fiber, would be like, great question. I don't know. Let's sit in that tension together. Religion says there is a top-down structure. And just so you guys know, if this was a religious church, I'd be at the top. <laughs> and I get to do and say whatever I want. And you get to respond accordingly to how I say or leave until I fill this place with people who act and think just like me. Gross. No. That is not who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be Abraham sitting with God, asking about the movements of God and asking what he wants to do. This has nothing to do with, by the way, Abraham, his covenant, the mission, the nation, the church that's moving. It's a whole other thing that God's doing. And Abraham's still like, hey, I'm really excited that I'm gonna have enough kids to be like number of the stars, but um, why are you doing that? And God's like, oh, okay. And so there's a space there's a space when Abraham asks his question just before God answers where God ponders. I love the idea that we should ponder God pondering. I also think God's a beautiful uh, illustrator of moments since he's sort of the designer of them. And I don't think he let Abraham out of the tension right after he was done asking his questions. I think he just stood there and sort of stared at him. <laughs> and that's when Abraham was like, did I just kill myself? <laughs> Why are you doing this, God? Maybe he even got a little excited like I would and his hands ended up on his hips towards the end of the, the paragraph. Yeah, and then, and then, and then, and then God's quiet and it's like. It's like when I asked my mom if I could show up just a little bit late to Christmas and she just stares at me and I'm like, I'll be there on time. <laughs> I think God sat in that space with Abraham a little bit. But finally the Lord responds. He lets Abraham out of the tension. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. It's beautiful. My argument is God adapt. He adapted. He met Abraham where he was in order to show him his heart. He said, I'm going to do this. Abraham said, but what if? And God said, okay. Now, you might think that once you get what it is you think you want from God, that everything's better. I know me. I remember when I was like 18 years old, before I met my wife, I prayed for her. Uh, I prayed that I would have healthy kids. I prayed that one day I'd have a home I love, and I'm a car guy, so I selfishly prayed for a specific kind of car. But I, I, I remember uh, mid-20s, I ended up pretty much getting all of that and still not feeling like they met the needs inside. And I think probably because I was praying for things that, that, that weren't really what I should have been praying for, although I loved what God did. I I think there were other things he was working on in me that he taught me through those. 
I think sometimes Abraham is a good example of what happens when you are careful to pray for all the things you want. Like, God, what about 50? God's like, okay, because all of a sudden within Abraham, something else started to happen. And he was like, hmm, 50 is a lot. It's a big city, but what if there's, you know, less than 50? Is he going to destroy the whole thing for less than 50? Who knows how long this time took? But eventually he scooches over just a little bit more, maybe another six inches. Now he's just a couple feet. And then Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? Then there's tension. Abraham asking if he can show up late to Christmas. Again. And God looks at him and maybe a tiny smile. And then he says, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And Abraham's like, God. 45 is still a lot of people, though. And I spoke to him again and said, suppose 40 are there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Abraham's on a roll. Relationship is happening. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham goes all in. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 people are found there. And the Lord looked at him, and by this time, I like to imagine Abraham's as close as a son could be with his dad. Maybe he puts his arm around him, and he says, Abraham, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And then it says, the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Over and over in this passage, what we see is God putting on display for all to see his patience, his kindness, his mercy and love. We're seeing him create space for Abraham just as he is to engage in all the things he's nervous about, about his very faith, about his very movement. This is the third moment that God is offering, which is an invitation to engage. So many people will sit with God in the space, then learn to draw near, but they won't actually engage in the difficulty of telling God what it is they're carrying inside their hearts, especially if what's bothering them about the church or faith is God. But Abraham doesn't do that. He offers up his whole self. And he teaches us what Psalm 100 teaches us. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. You see, this passage is not for Abraham and God. It is for all generations, including this one right here. This, my friends, is how the Lord is never changing. I'll put it on this screen. It's in this way that God is unchanging and that he is always adapting to the generations he loves, meeting them exactly where their hearts can receive him. He is always finding them. The cross. God puts humanity in a beautiful garden. We mess the whole thing up. And God then adapts and offers a cross. Do you not understand that probably the greatest thing that we have been taught in order to be a light to this world is that when we walk into dark places, our light washes over the wicked and the holy and that we are present in relationship with both. I know too many Christians that try to build little tiny you know, capture devices around their light only to shine it on a few holy things because they're so afraid to light up other things in the dark that might be ugly. I know too many. And this is why our churches empty out. 
because we're not willing to love our sons and daughters that ask questions about our behavior or about the church they grew up in or about faith or about hypocrisy or about messiness. And so they're filled with anxiety and they have no place to put it. And yet it is to be prideful not to bring that anxiety according to scripture. And it is a God who is constantly unchanging in his ability to adapt that wants to meet my 17-year-old daughter and the 55-year-old man in the back with completely different concerns about the same God. And you and I are supposed to be the tools that he uses to do that. But if you and I say, well, we've arrived, we have all the answers, and we smell like people who aren't curious or people who aren't willing to engage in mess, then nobody will ask questions. Nobody will see that I struggle like you struggle and that God can meet both our needs in completely different places. If you know this story, then you know that God would not find even 10 righteous people in this wicked city and so destroys it. This means to me that God walked all this out with Abraham despite already knowing how the negotiation would end. To me, this fact makes an even greater example This is an even greater example of the way God wants to sit with us wherever we are and whatever we're asking in spite of what he's accomplishing. He is willing to sit in that space at our our level, at our maturity. With our anxiousness, he is able to meet us with the precision that we need in order to have these things pulled from our lives. It also causes me to wonder how many relational moments with God I'm missing because of my unwillingness to adapt. How many times I've passed on a relationship because it's just too great Gatorade. And God's like, no, you'll, you'll survive it and you'll actually bless them. And there's really, you know, they're all just kind of the same, you know, I mean, movement. And we're, I'm like, no, no, God, you understand that's not what I do. I also wonder how many times God uh, is building me up to experience something more than what I'm experiencing right now while he serves me a garbage coffee, if you will. And he builds story into my work. He builds story into my heart without me even knowing that it's something that he's accomplishing because I'm having such a hard time tasting his movement. About six weeks ago, uh, I hit just a solid wall in my therapy. A lot of you know that... that, uh, I put myself in therapy about six years ago, and uh, it's just, it's been a massive blessing and importance for my heart, my marriage, my story, what I do here, and all those things. About six weeks ago, though, I hit a wall like nothing I've, I've ever hit. And I came to this space where I, I couldn't in any way taste how God was going to use this pain, was going to use this thing. And so I, like Abraham, through building this message, came to realize that I started negotiating with God. <laughs> And I had like, you know, for sake of illustration, like 50 things that, uh, that I really, really, really wanted to hold on to and not let go of because I just didn't think I would survive if I let go of them. And I really heard somewhere in my, my heart that God was like, no problem, Danny. You can keep your 50 things. But those 50 things were really heavy and I continued in my, in my journey towards trying to overcome And I remember that I came back and I was like, all right, what if I just keep 40 things? God was like, okay, you can keep your 40 things. Another week went by and I was like, it's too much. I'm just gonna keep 30 30 things, 20 things, 10 things, and five things. (laughs) 
And I finally came to this place with God where he's like, are you ready to give me all the things? And I said, but God, if I give you all the things, I'm going to be immensely sad because I've used some of these things to prop up the protection around my heart. And I feel like God was like, yeah, you are. This God who always knew that I was going to find myself in this sadness that now has frankly overwhelmed me the last 10 days. This sermon that I'm preaching to you right now, uh, I think, is one of uh, the saddest sermons from my internal self to you that I've ever given. And that's okay. Because I'm not holding any of the things anymore. I think it's a really beautiful thing that we as a church can walk out these kinds of processes. Unfortunately, mine has to be done on the lights and on a stage. It's just epic. But I believe it's a really beautiful example of God wanting to sit inside our stories in spite of the outcome. Does that mean I have to live with some anxiety? Yep. Does that mean I have to be sad for a while? Yep. Does that mean that Christmas is ruined or I can no longer speak or I have to curl up in a ball somewhere? Maybe, but not so far. And maybe it's because I've just decided to sit with him. I've decided not to just be in his presence, but to draw near and scooch over as close as I possibly can. And then I've decided to receive that invitation to engage and I've decided to just be with my God and draw near to my God and engage with my God and I'm anxious and I'm nervous and I'm bothered And I'm sad, and yet he himself, he himself knows it and receives it. I don't know the space that you're in. I don't know the moment that's been created right now. But I do know that we serve a God who loves us just as we are in spite of all the things that we carry. And I do know that that God wants to be in relationship with Abraham, with Danny, and with you. And that he has found you where you are. That you don't have to discover, you don't have to become, that he, in his never-changing ability to adapt to where you're at in your story, can whisper into you whether you are drowning or on fire, our God can still speak through and to both. He will find you in the sadness. He will find you in the soaring if life is just incredible to you. And he will find you and I in this space, in our cars, at work, in our alone times, in a group. None of that matters if we are willing to walk, if we are willing to lift, if we are willing to offer our whole selves to him in spite of the sadness, the pain, or the fear. This is the God who sits with you now. This is the moment that you can have that will last from now to forever. But you've got to be willing to scooch a little closer. You've got to be willing to cast that anxiety. You've got to be willing to know he's going to meet you even if you've never prayed before in your life or if most of the time you're the one on stage who's preaching. God will find it if you will be still enough to offer it. So let's just sit in that now. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, it's within this moment right now that you do the work you do. My prayer is that we could be a people who don't run from it, a people who don't look away, a people who don't think that we've messed up too much or we've accomplished too much. That there would be just an equal amount of yearning for your presence. And that God, we would recognize that in spite of the sadness, the sinking, in spite of the the joy, in spite of all the, the accomplishments, Lord, that you are still waiting for us to gather closer. We praise you, Father. We lift you. We sit in this moment right now. May it transform us, our families, and everything you have for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come broken hearted with healing Again. Come find your mercy, O oh, sinner, come near. Earth has no sorrow, the heaven can heal. Lay down your burden, lay down your shame. All who are broken. Lift up your face, oh wanderer, come home, you're not too far, so lay down your hurt, lay down your heart, come as you are, there's hope for the hopeless, and all the Come sit at the table, come taste of the grace, the rest for the weary, rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow, but heaven can cure. Let's all stand and sing it. Sorrow, the heaven can. 